This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. On this show, I really enjoy talking about teaching. In the past, I've discussed teaching with my guests like my mentor, George Frizzell, back in episode two, religious freedom center scholars, Dr. Charles Haynes and Ben Marcus, the documenting of stories through journalism with Linda K. Wertheimer, and talked high school classroom pedagogy with John Camardella and George Coe. I'm working on doing a middle school teaching episode this summer, but today's topic is the college classroom. When it's done well, the amount of thinking, planning, and organizing that goes into a semester or a year of teaching is almost indescribable. Good teachers comb through the vast canon of literature from every field, think about assessments, think about engaging class design to maximize in-person time, and many also go above and beyond to build relationships with their students. Running an effective course or classroom is a huge accomplishment. As a teacher, I'm always looking to improve my own practice, and I see these conversations as a way to learn directly from my colleagues who teach all age levels. Last summer, I followed a religious studies professor named Dr. Chris Jones. Not just because he is a religious studies professor, but because his Twitter bio included the words pedagogy junkie. If you haven't heard the word pedagogy, it means the practice and method of teaching. Following Dr. Jones's Twitter, I also became acutely aware of how seriously he takes his responsibilities as a steward of learning. He is a forward-thinking advocate of student wellness and is not shy about ways he thinks higher education can better honor and respect the realities of college students who face stressful lives or challenging circumstances. The topics in this conversation with Chris include effectively planning semester-long religious studies courses at the college level, finding a work-life balance as a student-centered educator on a college campus, and doing one's best to make life better for everyone on college campuses, professor, staff, and student alike. Chris Jones holds a Bachelor of Arts from Oklahoma Baptist University, a Master of Theology from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, and a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is the sole religious studies professor at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas, and he generously took time out of his spring break to talk to me about his role as a professor. So without further delay, please enjoy this conversation on teaching with Dr. Chris Jones. Dr. Chris Jones, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you for having me. Can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself, where you are, what you do, and what your specialties are? 
Yeah, so uh, I am Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. And Washburn is a regional public university. In fact, we are the only municipal university um, in America outside of the CUNY system. So we're kind of a special snowflake in that respect. Um, and so I am the only religious studies professor at Washburn. We're a relatively small public university. So I teach everything. Uh, my specialty is the social history of early Judaism. Uh, I do some work in theoretical approaches to nationalism and spatiality. Um, but really here, the brunt of what I do is teaching a wide range of introductory classes to religious studies as the only religious studies faculty member. I, I know that you sort of have like a collaboration with the philosophy department there, right? Well, I'm a member of the philosophy department. In fact, uh, when I arrived, we were at the Department of Philosophy, and now we're at the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies. So we've made the letterhead, at least. But uh, but yeah, we're in a department together, and uh, that actually reflects like some some changes in the field of religious studies. Like 40 years ago, religious studies was thought of largely as an adjunct to theology, and so it was often lumped together with philosophy. Uh, the idea was that we're all searching for truth together, so we might as well be in the same department. And today, religious studies is really more of a, a human and social scientific discipline that, that studies people in relation to whatever this thing called religion is. Um, but philosophy and religion still get administratively lumped together. So that's where we are. And I don't say that to, like, I love my colleagues in philosophy, but we don't do the same thing at all. Wonderful. Okay. So I'm always kind of curious about people's origins, their backstories about why they do what they do. So what was it about religion that appealed to you back when you started down your path that really hooked you into um, learning about Hebrew and Semitic studies? Like, what drew you into this life? A couple of classes I took. Um, I went to Oklahoma Baptist University, and I majored in English. And while I was there, I uh, took an elective upper division class called Religion and Society with Dr. Tom Dowdy. That blew my mind. It was the first time I'd ever had a chance to read theorists like Tyler and Frazier and uh, Durkheim, Malinowski, Mary Douglas. Um, and I mean, what it did for me at that point, I was pretty evangelical. I was I was very Christian, and it it really forced me to see the ways that Christianity was like other religions. Um, and, and to not see it as unique in that sense. And, and in many respects, I'm still unraveling those questions in my career today as I go forward. Um, but how I got into Hebrew and Semitic studies was uh, I went to seminary. I thought that I had a calling to be a minister, and I found out very quickly that I do not at all. Um, but while I was in seminary, I discovered the Hebrew language, and I realized that um, in terms of the field— um, I'm not a theologian. I don't like abstraction. I don't like making pronouncements about the nature of God. Um, I'm a philologist at heart. I like studying minutiae, texts. I like concrete evidence. I like dealing with particularity. And so for me, Hebrew was this chance to essentially troll theologians, uh, to ask them, mm -hmm. so when you pronounce that God is good, what do you make of this text? When you pronounce that uh, God has a universal love for all humans, what do you make of this text that clearly says that God doesn't? Um, how do we deal with these with the how do we deal with the noise um, I'm really much more of a noise guy than a signal guy um, I like dealing with the noise so I ended up doing Hebrew and Semitic studies at UW Madison and while I was there I got involved in Jewish studies and yada 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 I ended up writing a dissertation at Israel Nehemiah wonderful okay that's so cool so you're um, going through the PhD at UW Madison uh -huh. co correct I finished in 2014 okay um, and so, uh, yeah. Okay, so I have sort of a... You and I were actually in a PhD program probably at the same time. I was okay. at Mizzou in the College of Education from yeah. 2011 to 2013. 
And I didn't finish the PhD program. So lately I've been thinking a lot about the state of like higher education and uh-huh. prospects for PhDs in humanities and classics. And I've watched my friends go on to be successful to varying degrees after finishing their PhDs. And I think a lot about this because I failed to sort of stay the course in a PhD program because I was doubtful that I could or would be more than just an adjunct with no benefits somewhere. And so another opportunity arose. I jumped ship. I became a teacher. I'm doing what I'm doing now. It's wonderful. So I'd like to know a little bit about your um, PhD program years. Tell me about like doubt during like the PhD program. Did you ever feel like you were doing the right thing, the wrong thing, like being a scholar of ancient texts and classics in like this age of uh, higher ed upheaval and uncertainty seems challenging and I struggled with it a lot. How did you deal with that in your PhD years? Not healthily. Um, and if I were to go back and do it over again, I would definitely have sought out mental health care when I was in, in my PhD program um, because I internalized everything and overworked myself and really did damage to my health and to my marriage getting through. And I mean, it's a happy ending. I got through the program. I got a job. Um, I have a happy marriage, but uh, it could have been a lot better if I had if there had been people in my world in, you know, 2009 through 2014 talking about self-care, mental health care, doubt, things like that. Um, I mean, for me, yeah, first of all, I want to kind of push back on what you said about failing mm. um, because I don't ever regard it as a failure for somebody to decide to leave a PhD program and take a different opportunity. Um, that's success, and that is a way to use education. You know, I almost, I'm moving ahead a little bit, but uh, I almost dropped out of uh, the, the teaching life. The year that I, I left at, the, the year that I, I finished, I was on the job market for the first time, and I, I had no idea how to write a job letter. Nobody had ever taught me how to write a job letter. I, I flamed out horribly on the job market. Hmm. Um, got nothing from anybody. Um, a couple of, of first round interviews that went disastrously. And so, you know, I, I had a real low moment and I decided I need to quit. I just, I can't keep doing this. I'm not going to adjunct. I'm not going to work for no benefits. I'm not going to sell my labor to the university for that. Um, I will do something else. And so I actually ended up getting a job offer from a tech firm in Madison to do corporate training in, in technology. And uh, at the same time, I ended up getting a last-ditch two-year postdoc at Augustana College. And so I had to decide, like, do I want to take a short-term thing in my field and take a chance on that? Or do I want to take the, like, high-security, um, high-pay, you know, job in Madison, Wisconsin, the, the Berkeley of the Midwest, paradise on earth? Yeah. Um, what do I want to do? And we decided that it was worth investing two more years in my career to see if it would go anywhere. And since then, you know, things have taken off and I, I got a long-term position. But I mean, all that to say, I almost left. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that that would have been a bad choice. I don't think I would have regretted that. I think that that would also have been a happy life for me. Um, but I'm glad that I ended up where I am now. But yeah, to go back to your question about doubt, I mean, I doubted myself constantly. I was a, a first-generation college student, certainly first-generation PhD student. I really didn't know how PhDs worked when I got involved. All I knew was that I love teaching. Uh, my teachers in college changed my life, and I wanted to be them. I wanted to do the work they did. And so the PhD program for me was a, a way to get to that point, a way to get to that place. And, you know, so while I was doing my PhD, I mean, you know, so the stock market crashed and uh, humanities higher ed crashed and the job market collapsed. And then in Wisconsin, um, 
they the, the big labor protest occurred, you know, where uh, essentially the governor attempted to successfully attempted to dismantle much of the UW-Madison, um, to get rid of public labor unions as much as possible, things like that. And for me, that moment was really a catalyst because it made me realize that I, I believe deeply in public higher education. Mm. I believe deeply in humanities education. And for as long as I can make an honest middle class living doing this work, I believe in it and I'm going to keep doing it even if I, I do doubt myself, even if I do doubt the future of it. I think it's worth doing and I think that it's vitally important for American democracy that people are doing it. Well, your passion for teaching shines through and so I've been following you on Twitter for some time and we've interacted on there a ton yeah. and what has always stood out to me about your Twitter feed is your absolute dedication to being a good teacher. And teaching effectiveness is not something that many colleges seem to incentivize. I mean, I think that they're getting better on it, but you know, due to the publisher parish mentality in many R1s, I think that that's an area that they still have a long way to go. And a major reason I wanted to have you on this show is your self-description as a pedagogy junkie, because I am all about that as well. I love teaching methods. I love teaching style. I love getting better in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And... I see that in you in higher education and religious studies, and that makes me super happy. So I'd like to take a tour sort of of like one of your courses because you obviously care so deeply about your effectiveness as a teacher. So first, why does good teaching matter so much to you? Well, there are really there are two reasons, and the first one is personal. <clears throat> I went to a, a, a private liberal arts college, and I had great teachers. They taught four four teaching loads. They they didn't really publish a whole lot. They were dedicated to the craft of teaching, and you know I wouldn't have finished college without them. I would not have finished college without good teaching, and so I came to appreciate on a personal level the the power of great teaching mm. and how much impact we can have on students' lives by being good at our jobs. And and to me, that's not just about intentions, like. It's very easy to care about students, to be dedicated to students and things like that, Um, but particularly when you work in an institution like mine that has a lot of students who are on the margin, students who are economically marginal, students who are are minoritized on the basis of race or, or sexual orientation or documentation status. Good intentions aren't enough, um, and one of the biggest challenges for me has been figuring out how to take my good intentions and turn them into outcomes, turn them into students who don't drop out, who succeed in classes, who don't crash in the middle of the semester. Um, and so a lot of – this is maybe the second part of that, that answer then. A lot of my dedication to pedagogy has been just figuring out that I, I can't do it. I'm not good enough at this to be the teacher I want to be, so how do I get better? Wonderful. So let's talk about planning um, of a religious studies course at the college level. So I've had several high school teachers on this show, and I've sort Mm -hmm. of like meticulously uh, discussed how they plan a year of classes and like for Mm -hmm. a broad religious studies courses. But I've never had a college professor discussing Mm -hmm. specifically their narrow or specialty courses. Um, like one focusing on Hebrew scriptures, for example. So where high school teachers see their students every day, you may only see yours maybe twice a week, maybe three times a week. So first, how many courses are you assigned to teach per semester at your institution? So most of us have a 4-4 teaching load. So that's four classes per semester. And because I'm the only religious studies professor, I 
typically have four different preps every semester. Um, and so it's a lot of work because I'm in charge of teaching our two big gen ed feeder classes, intro to religion and world religions. And then I typically will take on um, at least one or possibly two upper division classes in different areas. Um, and to this point, I mean, your question is about specialty classes. I actually have not really taught in my area of specialty since I've been at Washburn. Um, I haven't, the, the interest isn't there. I haven't had an opportunity to. <clears throat> so um, most of what I teach actually is outside of my area of specialty, and I'm, I'm pretty constantly scrambling to learn new disciplines, new fields, and and figure out how to integrate that into the classroom. So for instance, this semester, um, I'm teaching a class on paganism, which I know very little about, actually. At least I did before I started planning the course. Um, I, I decided to teach the class because um, I had a lot of students who were interested, and I realized that if I could capitalizing that interest, I'd have an opportunity to attract majors and build a program, which is very difficult as a one-person show at a small university mm. that it has a very pre-professional focus. Um, and so I guess I could launch into then talking about how I planned this course um, because this is a higher upper division class, very specialized. And so for me, that started with a lot of very broad reading, trying to figure out, you know, what is the, the state of the dialogue in pagan studies in 2019, and then identify a couple of areas to drill down and to focus the class in, um, and that would have uh, affordable textbooks that students could could afford to actually own and buy and, and, and read. So, you know, those are, in many respects, the first stages of the process. Um, and then for me, uh, I am a big believer in backward design. Um, I've actually... Uh, Myself, Jane Webster, and Brooke Lester have published a book on backward design in the biblical studies classroom. So, Whoa, cool. Um, yeah, it's Understanding Bible by Design. Uh, plug, plug, there you go. Nice. Um, came out in 2015, I believe. Anyway, so this is a, so I, I often start by thinking, okay, so what are the big ideas that students ought to take out of this class? Like what, what enduring ideas do I want them to wrestle with after they take the class? And in the paganism class, it was really this one central question. Um, what would cause people who are born into positions of social power, i.e. white people, to actively choose a religion that reduces their social power? Mm -hmm. And then the other sort of enduring question was sort of related to that, but um, how does contemporary paganism tap into the trans-historical other of uh, European Christian Enlightenment rationalistic culture? Okay. And then everything works backwards from there, identifying specific texts, identifying specific curricula, and then planning out individual classes. Okay, so when you get like a calendar for an upcoming semester mm -hmm. and you have all these classes and you have and you identify those big picture questions, those big picture goals for what you want them to walk away with, how do you sort of like go about laying out a plan for the semester? Because the difference between college classes and high school classes is that we're often planning as we go, whereas colleges, you have to basically have your 16-week syllabi prepared in advance so students know mm -hmm. what they're going to be doing. So it seems like it's way more front-loading as far as work goes. Is that accurate? It is somewhat. Uh, it's a lot of work up front to plan out a college class because you do have to commit to a schedule early on, um, commit to a series of assignments. And the worst thing is when you, you try something in a college class and you realize by week two it's not going to work. But now it's in the syllabus and so you're, you're pretty well committed to it. So you really do have to think carefully about it before you start. You know, for me, I'll, I'll generally figure out how many um, – 
how many individual sessions I'm going to have with students and then try to fill those in with essential content that I need and then figure out how to organize that in terms of, of a, a, a reading load um, across the textbooks and things like that. And I mean, there's no linear process. A lot of it involves, you know, reading through a possible textbook, adopting it, and then figuring out how it might break down into individual sessions, how it might have some coherence. In this class, the ethnography that I chose, uh, Witching Culture by Sabina Magliocho, um, hit at a pretty high level. So I realized I was going to have to spend a few weeks just prepping students to dive into that book. And so that part of the class I could have done better. I'm already through that and so I'm reflecting on it now. Um, I sort of threw them into the deep end with a lot of primary sources. I had them reading um, primary source Viking myths. I had them reading primary source Celtic myths. And they really struggled to find their feet in a lot of this material. Um, but I wanted to give them a historical narrative of various, you know, former things that were regarded as pagan by Western culture so that when they got into contemporary paganism, they'd have a vocabulary for this stuff already. And I think that has worked out. Uh, they're, they're getting the Magliocho book. But just to say, like, in terms of planning um, – it was a lot of work to figure out what do what do these students who have had a religious studies class before but have not studied this topic before, what are they not going to know when they get into the book I really want them to read? Gotcha. Okay, so when you are deciding texts, I mean, this is extraordinarily challenging. I mean, just for mm -hmm. me, choosing one version of the Tao Te Ching to teach in a class is like a nightmare. Um, mm -hmm. So how do you decide what texts are most appropriate for any class, like in advance of ever meeting your students? Like if you're mm -hmm. planning in the summertime, you don't know what students you're going to have next semester. How do you sift through this gargantuan amount of material and just give it your best shot? Like, how do you how do you decide and make that best guess? Well, I narrow it down some by just excluding almost anything that is published as a textbook. Um, I really don't like most of what is marketed as university textbooks out there. I think most of it is dry. It's overpriced. It's infantilizing. Um, it's primarily marketed to professors with uh, um, uh, supporting materials that um, – that make our jobs easier, but uh, they don't engage students. I don't find the textbooks are very useful. I tend to like to use authentic materials in my classes. Um, and so in terms of, of knowing my students, you know, that's difficult when you start an institution. But once you've been at a place for a couple of years, you generally know who they are. You know where they're coming in at, and you can figure out what level is going to be appropriate for them to get into a topic with. So in my intro classes, I presume nothing about what my students know going in. I assume that they have never even heard of religion. And so we hit on the very, very bottom um, and try to build up from there. And so I tend to use um, ethnographies or memoirs in those classes because they're very accessible. They're written to be read by a popular audience, but they deal with complex ideas. And then I can provide uh, scaffolding around that in the classroom to help them develop the, the disciplinary vocabulary to think within religious studies about these primary sources that they're reading. Um, in upper division classes, I can assume that they've had one class, but because we're a small program, there's very little sequencing of courses. So, you know, students who take my upper division classes have had one class in religious studies. That could be world religions, it could be intro, it could be a Bible class. And so it's difficult to know exactly what they're going to know coming in. It's really more just they've had some prior scaffolding thinking disciplinarily about religion. And, and so a lot of it is just, okay, what habits of mind do they have and how can we build on that going in? 
What uh, do you want to name drop some texts that you've had the best luck with for your intro level classes? So for intro to religion, um, I tried a lot of things. I tried giving them primary sources that didn't work. I tried giving them theory that was too abstract for them, not too difficult, but too abstract for them. Um, what I do now, and this is working really well, this is probably the best class I teach. Um, I have them read two ethnographies. I have them read uh, uh, Dennis Covington's book, Salvation on Sand Mountain, uh, his experience as a journalist of working with Appalachian snake handlers. And I have them read Mama Lola by Karen McCarthy Brown, an ethnographic study of Haitian voodoo in New York. And the logic behind that is really twofold. First of all, it's salacious, it's exotifying, and it brings students in the door. I have pressure to maintain high enrollments and <laughs> taking the class in snake handling definitely brings students in. They're curious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, what it does is it it allows you then to facilitate encounters with these very other communities to my predominantly white, predominantly Christian Kansas students. Uh, they can see the humanity of these various communities. And more importantly, they can observe the, the complexities involved in studying the other. Um, and so the Covington book largely functions as a foil. Uh, Covington does not do a good job as a scholar of religion of studying another community. He dives into it and wants to join it and is excited about it. And then once he realizes that it's not what he thought, he backs out and judges it, which is exactly not what we do as scholars of religion. Um, so I want them to understand that studying humans means engaging with them, but it also means changing them in the process. You cannot study another person without inserting yourself into that conversation. And the discipline of religious studies largely functions to give us a, a framework and a vocabulary for facilitating that conversation in a way that is respectful of other people. So that's basically that course in a nutshell. And those books work well because they're accessible, they're intrinsically interesting, and uh, they facilitate cross-cultural encounters. Awesome. So say that a class, um, say you have a class session, like a 50-minute or, or uh -huh. 75-minute or whatever it may be on that given day, and students leave the classroom. How do you decide, um, as the professor, what do you expect students to do before the next class? Like, how much uh, outside work does your, do your students do? How much do you emphasize that? What are students doing outside of your class in order to be prepared for upcoming classes? I have found that less is more particularly in, in my context where students are very busy. Most of my students have jobs. Many of them have families. Many of them commute. Uh, they have very complicated, very busy lives, and they really do want to learn. They, they're earnestly engaged in learning, um, but they have limited time. And so I find that the more I can explain to students why outside work is valuable and important, and the more that I can make that work intrinsically interesting, the more odds I have of them actually doing that work. Um, so the way that I structure an hour of class is um, I start every class period by having students do what I call a right to learn exercise. And this is a closed book, uh, short response to a prompt based on the reading that was assigned for that day. And the idea there is twofold. It's to hold them accountable to do the reading before class. Um, and I, I tend to ask sort of broad questions that allow them to fill in what they remember so they can get partial credit even if they read two pages. I want to give them credit for whatever they're able to bring into the classroom. But then the other thing that about that is that it allows me then to build discussion off of that. So generally, um, I always have them work in assigned groups. I find that works way better for facilitating group discussion. Um, and then I have them do the right to learn. I collect it some days, some days I don't. Um, and then I have them talk about what they wrote with their small groups. And I check in with the small groups and then figure out 
about kind of where the class is at with the topic. And then I try to build a whole class discussion out of whatever they've put in so far. Um, I typically kick back to small groups a lot during discussion if it seems like the same students are answering all the time or they don't have any new answers or discussion is stalled. We'll go to a new prompt and they'll go into small groups again. And so that way, students feel themselves driving the conversation. They feel some ownership and responsibility for what the class produces. We're, we're a genuinely con constructivist classroom space. Um, but at the same time, I have some plans at the outset of what I want to get to. And I, I work that material in around my students' interests. So I'd imagine that this is not the style of class that your students are experiencing across all their campus classes. No. What what has been their reaction to your style of teaching versus like say a sit and get lecture with like maybe 150 students in the room? At first resistant, um, I think that my, my predecessor here is a very, very good teacher, a very, very good scholar, um, but had a very top-down lecture style, like come in, sit, and watch the performance of, of the learned scholar perform in, you know, intelligence in front of them. Um, <clears throat> and so my first year here, most of the students who took my classes expected that. They expected to show up take some notes, you know, do the fill in the bubble objective exam and, you know, get whatever grade they get. And so I had to shift the culture a bit. Um, and that involved, uh, you know, it, being emphatic about doing, you know, engaged active learning and, and trying to attract students who wanted that. And so I think in my second year, most students take my classes now know what they're getting into. They, they expect that going in and they seem to really like it. I mean, they, they, they review it positively when I, I did midterm reviews, anonymous surveys and survey monkey of, of last week. And most students actually said they, they love the small group discussion. Um, they love being assigned into small groups. Actually, they, they don't think they do, but when they realize that it means they don't have to worry about meeting new people, they don't have to worry about who they're supposed to talk to. There's not that awkward, like, are we in a group together? I don't mm. know. Are you? <laughs> it just, no, you know who your people are and that's who you talk to. And, you know, we switch that around every four weeks. And so you get to meet people and it works really well. Um, and I have found that students really want to be engaged in class. I've also found that this approach uh, eliminates a lot of the problems with technology. If you are switching things up every few minutes, if you are actively involving students in conversation, they have less need to be on their phones or be on their laptops. They have more reason to be intrinsically engaged in what's going on in the classroom. Do they do they do you guys take any trips in Topeka to any like houses of worship or anything like that? Yeah. Intro, um, I've started doing site visits uh, to – I've taken students to the local Islamic Center. I've taken students to mindfulness meditation at uh, the Unitarian Universalist Church. Uh, we did Shabbat service with a Torah reading a couple of weeks ago. And uh, next week, we are visiting uh, the local Baha'i community for the celebration of Nowruz. Um, so I've tried to build some connections with the local community. I have a little funding to pay honoraria to people who host our students. Um, and so far, that's gone really well. The students love these trips. They love that opportunity to engage directly with the community and observe people outside of their experience, you know, in worship. Um, and uh, it's been great to build relationships with with people uh, of faith, you know, uh, religious people here in the Topeka community as well. I mean, that's why this show exists. That's why I started doing this show in 2017 is my students and I were having these brilliant conversations with all these yeah. fantastic practitioners. And I loved the conversations. They were just endly fa endlessly fascinating. And that's why this show started in the first place. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you've changed as a teacher over the past five years since becoming a professor. Like what sorts of methods did you do your first year that you find like humorous now or like how have you really grown? 
So for me, it's using group work. I always hated group work when I was in college because most group work is like turn to your partner, talk yeah. about blah. Um, and it's awful because, <laughs> you know, either you're a bright student and you do all the work or you're not. You're, you're like you're, you just don't care. And so you have to try to look like you care for a while. It's just it's not effective. And so I really resisted it. And I could get away with that when I was a TA. Um, I could get away with that when I was teaching primarily major courses at Beloit College, my first job after finishing my PhD. Um, but when I started teaching service classes at Augustana, at Augustana, I was in charge of teaching the required Christian studies class that everybody had to take, even though most people didn't want to. And so being faced with 25 students at a time who literally were forced to take a class they did not care about forced me to grow as a teacher and forced me to try new things. And so I started using a lot more paired discussion at that point. I started using a lot more um, uh, 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 active learning as a way of engaging students so that it wasn't just me doing all the talking. And that worked really well there. And then when I got to Washburn, I realized that, you know, because my students at Washburn are not all traditional age college students that come from a wide variety of backgrounds um, and they frankly don't know each other as well. It's a bigger campus than Augustana. <clears throat> Using assigned groups was a great way to eliminate a lot of those interpersonal barriers and just have them know what the plan is, give them a structure in which to then be creative and to develop their own ideas. What are some of your favorite assignments <clears throat> that you've had students do? Um, last semester, I started doing unessays uh, for my upper division classes, allowing students to, instead of writing an essay in response to a, a research prompt, to produce anything that's not an essay. And so uh, I had a couple of students write short stories. This is in my class, uh, Jews, Christians, and Sex, which deals with constructions of sexuality and Judaism and Christianity. I had a couple of students write short stories, uh, very good short stories. I had one student do a, an absolutely brilliant sculpture. Um, her her thesis was relating to um, the the early Stoics and their rejection of all gender and sexual norms. Um, and so she did a sculpture of two completely gender indeterminate humans engaged in, intima in intimacy together. And it's, it's a beautiful piece of work. And so like a student turned this in as her semester project in my class. I feel very humbled by that. It, you know, so that was, I thought, really successful. I'm doing that again in my paganism class. And so I've got one student who's going to do a documentary. I've got one who I think is going to do a, uh, a bricolage, um, and we'll see what else students come up with. Wonderful. I, I may have to share some of my past assignments sure. that I've had students do in my classes because, you know, I've got statues or sculptures of the Buddha. Uh -huh. I've got uh, hand, I've got um, scrolls that students made of the Torah yeah. and like wrote out and like learned how to like write in Hebrew to like recreate uh -huh. a part of like a Torah scroll. Uh, and it's just wonderful watching what people can come up with when you just sort of like throw those norms out the window, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I love it. Okay, so on Twitter, like where we first met, um, I've noticed uh -huh. that you are very, very open and inviting towards your students and that you seem to genuinely care about them, their well-being. You are an advocate for students online. Uh, I mean, you talk about their health, you talk about their happiness, you talk about their education. And in like a syllabus, you invite them to even to like text you. So I mean, you are you're putting yourself out there. So tell me a little bit about your philosophy of what types of barriers you have with your student, how personal the relationships get, and how you manage like a work life balance as such an open and inviting professor with also such a high teaching load. 
Yeah, it's a challenge. And I mean, a lot of the reason for it is that I often say, you know, students living conditions are students learning conditions. And so the more that they are being taken care of and taking care of themselves outside of the classroom, the easier they are to teach in the classroom. So, you know, I want students to know that there are resources available for mental health care, for physical health care, for food insecurity, for um, any number of things that could be causing them trouble in in their their day to day lives so that they have I mean, because I care about them as humans and and because in my institutional role as professor, that makes them more likely to learn and more likely to be successful. And so I do see us as as supporting the entire person. And that comes out of my small liberal arts college background, obviously. But uh, in terms of boundaries, I often feel like like we professors set institutional rather than interpersonal boundaries with our students. Uh, so, you know, we'll say you can only email me and only before 10 p.m. Um, and so on. And so we we attempt to essentially define the relationship in terms of, of can and can't, yes or no, what you can and can't do. Make sure to address me by salutation. Make sure that your email doesn't have any grammatical errors. Um, and I just don't see that as especially productive personally um, because that creates an extra barrier for students to reach out for the help that they need to be successful. Uh, many students, especially those from marginalized backgrounds, um, have trouble with you know the basic script of the professional email or you know struggle to keep straight you know what what email versus texting versus Twitter DMs what is appropriate there and they need to learn those things but I'm not going to push them away because they haven't already figured it out um, and so to me it doesn't matter that much all my communication goes straight to my phone so if it's an email if it's a text if it's a Twitter DM either way it's coming to the same place and I can respond to it in my own time um, so in terms of setting up boundaries I don't have any trouble keeping stable boundaries from my personal life. I don't post personal stuff on social media. Um, I rarely answer texts or emails or messages after you know 11 p.m. at the latest. Um, and I, I set up personal time with my family that is, is really sacred. I don't do work email during dinner. I, I don't do work email when I'm hanging out with my kids over the weekend. Um, I, I tend to be very protective. Really, the boundaries I'm more concerned with are my students' boundaries. Um, so I'm very careful about invading student spaces in real life or online. I try to make sure that students want me to be where I am, um, that they want me to to be in a particular place and they're comfortable with me being there. So, you know, for example, I follow students on Twitter, uh, generally only if they follow me first or if they have very public content. Um, but I don't engage with tweets about sex, about relationships, about drinking or drugs or about personal appearance. You know, so like if a student posts a selfie, I generally don't engage that because I don't want to be misunderstood as a, a leering older male professor. Sure. Um, that is that is invasive of the student's personal space. Um, none of their personal life is my business unless they choose to make it my business. Um, and obviously the exception here is if a student is posting things that suggest they are not safe, then I take appropriate administrative steps to get that student support. Um, you know, beyond that, um, what else can I say about that? Oh, I hold office hours in the library in a space that is usually inhabited by students, but I have a sign that says like office hours the professor is in. So students are clear why I'm there. I'm not some random old dude hanging out in the student part of the library. I'm there to be accessible to students who want to talk to me. And the last thing I can say is that, you know, students often share personal details about their lives with me because they they learn to trust me. They, they find out that I'm a safe person to talk to. Um, so I always make it clear with students that they're always welcome to tell me things, but I will never ask them 
personal questions. It's not my business to know anything. They don't have to share anything with me that they don't want to. Um, and then typically, you know, as soon as I've identified what a student's issues might be, what a student might be struggling with, I try to get them to somebody who can help them. So if it's mental health, I'm not a clinical practitioner. I can't fix depression or anxiety. Let's talk to counseling services. If it's uh, fear for safety, if it's, you know, an abusive relationship, let's go talk to the campus advocate who can then put you in, in touch with legal resources. If it's immediate safety, let's call WUPO. Let's call the, the police um, and so on down the line. So I, I very much function as a form of triage for students. You know, what help do you need and how do I get you in front of the person who can actually help you? Awesome. Well, that I mean, that that is just remarkable. And I think that's really um, going to be like a, a generational defining shift as far as teaching so. goes at the college level and the high school level, because so many of the things you just said are things that I recognize in myself at the mm -hmm. high school level. Yeah. Um, so speaking of Twitter, uh -huh. Let's keep talking about that for a second because sure. it's, it's intriguing to me. So as a religious studies scholar, historian, student of ancient societies, how do you see Twitter as being so worthy of engagement in 2019? Because you're very active and you're almost like part of like this like Twitter historians movement that's going on. So what does the platform do for you professionally? A lot of things. It's very kind to say that I'm part of this Twitter historians movement. I'm very much on the margins of that. I like a lot of Kevin Cruz's tweets, um, but I haven't really produced a great deal of content. Most of my content is focused either on pedagogy or, um, frankly, jokes. Hey, you got like that. You got my attention. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, but uh, for me, the platform is useful because it it provides such instant connectivity and and. and with a relative lack of hierarchy. So, you know, I can follow famous academics and journalists, people that I, I respect a great deal, people who wouldn't normally interact with me, but I can get some of their less filtered thoughts and I can see them interact in real time. And occasionally, you know, they'll engage with me directly, which is, is always really helpful and really good. Um, and then, you know, for me as a way to network with colleagues in an era when, you know, a lot of us don't have travel funding to go to conferences all the time, uh, it's difficult to meet people in our field. I've met so many colleagues in my, my field of religious studies and biblical studies that I wouldn't have met otherwise and so like there's a there's a little group of us that met on Twitter um, and we always at our professional society conference every year we always crash the Oxbridge reception together which so Oxford and Cambridge very mm -hmm. hoity-toity you know and so we we show up un, uninvited and hang out and and enjoy the open bar um, and connect with each other and so I've made these friendships that I wouldn't have had otherwise if I weren't engaged actively online and then with students, that happened largely by accident. Uh, when I was at Augustana, my previous appointment, um, a couple of students sort of found me on Twitter and followed me. And I, I had never planned on engaging with them, but I ended up sort of saying, hey, what's up? And it ended up turning into this really useful thing. It became a, a, a source of back-channel communication where students could approach me about things. Students could get to know me as a human being outside of the classroom. I could get to know them and, and see their world a little bit more, see the things that they are concerned about and worry about and and excited about and I could adjust the way that I approach students that way and so when I started at Washburn I definitely set out to uh, do something like that here as well and it took me about a year to sort of break into the social networks and and become visible to students at Washburn uh, because again I, I'm very cognizant about invading student space I don't go and follow every student that I can um, instead I follow administrators and tried to to 
engage in Twitter conversations with official channels and then get students to notice that and engage. And so starting toward the end of last summer, I noticed that many, many students were engaged with me on Twitter and that this had become a, a full-on source of back-channel communication about the university and that I had become a resource for students to approach about a number of uh, whatever's going on that, that they feel like they have no other recourse to deal with. Uh, and so it is indispensable to me now, and I'm very committed to using it going forward. Well, Chris, I am extremely grateful to you for your dedication to teaching and for taking some time out of your spring break to talk to me today. Um, where can people find you if they want to know more? So the easiest way to find me is on Twitter. Um, I'm Prof. Chris M. Jones at Twitter. Um, or uh, if you just Google Washburn University Religious Studies, I am the only professor that comes up. So you can email me at my professional uh, email address. I'll be happy to engage people there. And I think you even have like uh, syllabi and stuff on your faculty webpage, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I have. And I probably need to update that because I've made some changes to syllabi. But yeah, if, if anybody's interested in in my syllabi or in, in how I've crafted policies around attendance, participation, um, to be inclusive of mental health issues, uh, please hit me up. I'd be very happy to share. That is remarkable. I kind of see this as being sort of like a really good resource for early career faculty that are kind of looking to push themselves as as teachers, you know? Absolutely. And I'm very happy to, to be a resource to anybody that's looking. Well, Dr. Chris Jones, Washburn University, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.